I said in the prayer, Revelation chapter 9 is not a happy chapter. In fact, it contains one of, if not the most frightening and terrifying chapters in all of the Bible because it describes for us two diabolic armies which are divinely unleashed upon the earth in order to judge mankind. And if you just skim through the chapter and look at it, you will see it's not a very pleasant chapter. And it would be definitely one I would skip over if I didn't believe in teaching the whole counsel of God. Now, we have been looking at the judgments of God, which will be poured out upon the earth during a seven-year period of time known as the, what, the tribulation. These seven years will begin when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks open the first of seven seals on the title deed to the earth, which we looked at back in chapter 5, which he alone is worthy to possess. When that first seal is loosed, who arrives immediately on the scene? The Antichrist and his first order of business will be to sign a covenant with the nation of Israel. We get that from Daniel 9.27. This will be Israel's covenant with death, as it is termed in Isaiah 28, verse 15. Because although she will believe that this Satan-possessed man is truly, at long last, her deliverer, and he will be the one who will bring her peace with all of her Gentile neighbors. Yet the truth of the matter is that his wicked intention from the very beginning will be to deceive not only Israel, but to deceive the whole world. And he will, in the middle of the tribulation, at the three and a half year mark, break his treaty with her, and then he will turn on her in his all-out effort to totally destroy her. However, as we have already learned, God himself will be using this severe time of testing and tribulation to bring Israel to the place of repentance and acceptance of her true deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will also be using the seven years of unprecedented horror on the earth to bring many, a great multitude of Gentile people into his kingdom. So God's plans and purposes will sovereignly override Satan's plans and purposes, as is always the case. The divine judgments which are to be poured out upon the earth will occur in three series of judgments. Remember these? Is it all coming back to you now? I know we've had a long break. It seems like it's been two years to me, but it's only been a month. There are going to be seven seal judgments. And then seven trumpet judgments. And the seven trumpet judgments, remember, emerge from the seventh seal judgment. So really, the seven trumpet judgments are the seventh seal judgment. And then there will be seven bowl or vile judgments. And likewise, the seven bowl judgments emerge from the seventh trumpet judgment. And they actually are the seventh trumpet judgment. Now, we are currently, in our study, considering the seventh seal judgment. The seventh seal judgment. And this is the longest judgment of all because it contains the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments. So the seventh seal judgment really consists of 14 judgments. Now, in our previous lesson, which covered chapter 8 of Revelation... 
<clears throat> we read of the first four trumpet judgments, which will be divinely controlled judgments. Because remember, they involve one-third, a one-third proportion of, first of all, the land. One-third proportion of the sea is affected, all the salt waters of the earth. And then one-third of the fresh water supply of the earth will be affected in the third trumpet judgment. And fourthly, we learned that one-third of the sky will be affected, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So the first four trumpet judgments are to be judgments which involve nature. And they will serve as warning judgments. God is only judging one-third of the earth. They are warnings from God to men that if they do not repent and turn to him, then even worse and more global judgments will occur. Chapter 8 ended, you might remember, with a chilling warning to the inhabitants of the earth which came from a flying angel. And this angel in a loud voice said, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And that was in the last verse of chapter 8. Now these words of warning tell us that the final three, we've already looked at the first four trumpet judgments, this word from the angel tells us that the final three trumpet judgments are going to be far worse than the first four. Right? Because he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. The first four were warning judgments. The last three are woe judgments. And woeful they are. Because trumpet judgments number five and six involve horrendous demonic torture and diabolic destruction, which are on a worldwide scale. And the final woe judgment, the seventh trumpet judgment, consists, remember, of the seven vile judgments. And they are really bad. So we must remember, we must keep in mind that not only is the... the tribulation period divinely orchestrated to purge Israel, you know, and to get Israel to that place where she will accept her Messiah, and to bring also the purpose, one of the purposes is to bring many Gentile peoples to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But another reason for the tribulation period is to punish the ungodly, those who stubbornly, pridefully, willfully, and consistently, persistently, refuse to repent. And it's just amazing to me, especially after we look at what we're going to look at today and then next week, how after going through these horrible trials that people do not repent, but many of them will not. But part of the purpose is to try to get people to repent. Um, And when they won't, then they have to be punished. And so one of the reasons for the tribulation is punishment of the ungodly, those who will not repent and submit to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the fact that God put this ninth chapter into the Bible once again shows us his grace. Because in inspiring the Apostle John to include the details of this chapter... God is really warning men ahead of time of the terrible consequences of rejecting his son. There are over, did you know this? There are over 600 warnings in the Bible about hell. 
and about the ultimate judgment of unrepentant, unbelieving men. You see, God takes absolutely no delight, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So he repeatedly attempts to stop men from their own destruction by way of his numerous repeated warnings. And this is exactly what he's doing in chapter 9 of Revelation. For example, let's say that you're traveling down a highway on your way to some particular destination. And along the way, you read, you passed, and you read over 600 signs which warned you that the road you were currently on was leading you to ultimate death and destruction. And yet, you stubbornly and persistently remained on that road and until you finally fell over a cliff and died. Well, then surely you would have nobody to blame but yourself, would you? Because the warning signs were there, 600 of them. God, in his mercy and his grace, repeatedly warns men ahead of time through, for example, the judgments that we'll be discussing in today's lesson, that death and destruction are coming. They are coming. This isn't pie-in-the-sky things. This is coming. All of these things we read about will one day occur on earth. But men can avoid them. They can avoid them completely if they would merely heed his warnings. And this is especially true today. In the day of grace in which you and I live, because we live in the church age. So we have the opportunity to be saved and brought into the body of Christ known as the church. And the church is going to be totally removed, I believe, and we gave many reasons for a pre-tribulation rapture. The church will be removed before any of this starts to happen, before the tribulation period. So there is no excuse for men to have to go to death and to, and to destruction if they will, would merely listen to God and heed his many, many warnings. And I pray that that's what you will do, especially some of you who today may scoff the idea of literal demons. We'll be talking about demons today. And I know that's not a very popular thing even among Christians, Christians but they're in the Bible, and I believe everything that's in the Bible. So we'll be talking about demons now, in this lesson, which is entitled Liberated Locusts, that's a terrible name, isn't it? Liberated Locusts. That's exactly what we'll be talking about. We're going to consider the fifth trumpet judgment. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the sixth trumpet judgment. Today, just the fifth. The first of the three woe judgments. Now, as we discuss a very dreadful army of demonic locusts in verses 1 to 12, we're going to look at three main subdivisions. In verses 1 to 3a, we're going to discuss the discharge of the locusts. Then in verses 3b to 6, we'll look at the destruction of the locusts. And then in verses 7 to 12, we'll learn of the description of the locusts. So let's begin by looking at the discharge of the locusts in verses 1 to the first part of verse 3, the discharge of the locusts. John says, starting in Revelation 9, 1, And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. 
And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. We'll stop there. Now, back in Revelation 8-2, we learned that there are seven presence angels. Remember them? Seven angels who stand in the presence of God. And each one of these seven presence angels was given what? A trumpet to, to blow. And as each of the first four angels consecutively blew their trumpets, then judgments fell on the earth in those one-third proportions. First of all, on the land, then the sea, then the uh, fresh water supply, and last of all, on the sky. Now, in the first verse of chapter 9 that I just read for you, John tells us that the fifth angel proceeded to blow his trumpet, and when he did, what did John see? He saw a star fall from heaven. There's the fifth angel. All right, it says a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Now, before we discuss the identity of this star, I want to mention the fact, because this is important, that the Greek, in the Greek, the original Greek, the verb fall there, where it says, I saw a star fall, that is given in the perfect tense, which means that John was referring to an action which had already occurred in the past. So John, in other words, was not right then and there seeing an angel falling from heaven, but rather he saw a star which had fallen from heaven. So you see, he didn't see a he he didn't see a falling star. He saw a fallen star, and there's a significant difference that we'll get to in a minute. Now, was this star a literal star, like our sun, the sun of our solar system? Or does the context of the passage here suggest something else? Well, in fact, the passage suggests, because of the use of the masculine pronouns he and him, if you'll notice in verse 1, the the pronoun him is used, and in verse 2, it says, and he... Because of those two pronouns, and also because of the fact that this fallen star was given a key and then used that key to open something up, that kind of indicates to us that this is not a sun-like star, right? <laughs> you wouldn't give the sun a star, and he, he, you wouldn't refer to the sun as a he, and he wouldn't take a key and open something up. So we know from the context that we can very safely say this is a male personality. Would you agree? Yes, okay, thank you. And not a sun-like star. So now we say, who is this star? Well, several times, angels, or many times, actually, in the scripture, angels are referred to as stars. There are several places in the book of Job where angels are referred to as stars. Also, we find in the book of Revelation. For example, Revelation 12:4, that angels are referred to as stars. Now, some people is, insist that this angel, this fallen star, can only be a holy angel. A holy angel since, and here's the reason why they say this, since this fallen star, this angel, 
was given the key to the bottomless pit. They say that the key is a divine possession and that it would not be entrusted to a fallen angel, to a demon. However, others believe that this fallen star is none other than who do you think? Satan. The fall of Satan, who was once, at the beginning, one of the, or the very loveliest of all of God's created angelic beings, and he was known as Lucifer, which literally means shining one or bright one, his fall is given to us several places in the scripture, one of them being Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 15. Which reads, 12 to 15, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will, remember the five I wills of Satan, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The initial fall of Satan is also described for us, and you'll be looking this up in your homework, in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 to 19. Essentially, it tells us about how beautiful he was, how he was uh, clothed in all the precious pearl, uh, precious stones, that he was just absolutely perfect in wisdom and in beauty, and in fact, that's what precipitated his self-motivated sin was his beauty. His beauty was his downfall because he took such pride in it that he thought he could become as God. Also, we uh, are told about Satan's fall in Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, and we'll get to that one of these days soon, I would think. Yet although Satan has been expelled from residing in heaven, you know, at his fall that we just read about, Satan was... No longer was heaven his residence. He had been one of the guardian cherubs, so he was constantly before the throne of God. Well, at the fall, that ended. He was kicked out of God's government, and he lost his special position as a guardian cherub. But yet we know that to this day, he still has access to heaven, doesn't he? Because, well, we know for one reason, because he accused Job. Didn't he? He had access before God to accuse Job. And also he is called the accuser of the brethren. He still appears before God to accuse you and I, those who know Jesus Christ. But fortunately, we have our advocate for the defense, the Lord Jesus Christ, who always steps in to intervene for us and say, No, you cannot accuse them because they come under my shed blood. So he still has access to God's throne room. However, in Revelation 12, the latter part of the chapter, we're we're going to learn that during the tribulation period, probably at the beginning, 
of the Great Tribulation, which would mean, you know, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Satan is going to be permanently cast out of heaven so that he will no longer have the opportunity to appear before God day and night as our accuser. From that time on, all of Satan's activities will be confined to the earth and to the atmospheric heavens around the earth. And I suppose that's why it becomes the time of great tribulation, because all of Satan's activities will be down here on earth. He won't be going back and forth. So everything will be concentrated down here, all of his evil. Now, it would seem likely, because of the fact that uh, John says or uses the the past tense so that this is referring to a fallen star, a star who has already fallen. It would seem likely that the person referred to here is Satan. Now, what is it that this fallen star, who I personally believe is Satan, what is it that he does? Well, it tells us he opens the bottomless pit in verse 2, and he does it with the key which is given to him. Now, who do you suppose would give Satan the key to open the bottomless pit? Who is the one who has the key to hell and to death? Jesus Christ. We know that from back in Revelation 1.18. So it is the Lord Jesus who will permit Satan, if this is Satan. One of the reasons I feel that is, I feel like it is Satan is because of the fact not only that's past tense, a star who has fallen, But um, because elsewhere in the scripture, when it just talks about an angel who comes from heaven, it says an angel descends from heaven or an angel comes down from heaven and does such and such. But this specifically says a fallen star. So I believe it's Satan. It's the Lord who will permit, allow Satan to take the key to the bottomless pit and loose the dreadful locust, which will emerge out of the midst of the smoke of the pit. So once again, we learn that it is the Lord Jesus who is sovereignly in control of all that occurs during the time of the horrible tribulation period. Remember, just as the crown of the Antichrist had to be given to him by the Lord back in Revelation 6-2, and just as the power of the red horse of war had to be divinely given to him in Revelation 6-4, and as the power over one-fourth of the earth was given to death and hell, so now we find that it is also Christ who will give Satan the key to open the bottomless pit. Now, this is the first time that this expression, bottomless pit, in the English, is used in our Bible. The term is used three times in Revelation chapter 9, and it is used four other times in the rest of the book of Revelation. So it appears a total of seven times in the Bible, the bottomless pit. Now in the Greek, it is literally the pit of the abyss. And some people have suggested that it is located, the place where the bottomless pit is. I mean, who knows for sure. But some have suggested that it is located at the bottom of the Great Gulf in Hades. You remember about the Great Gulf? 
the great gulf fix, separates the place of torment where the rich man went from the place of um, uh, comfort, also known as right paradise or Abraham's bosom. That there was a great gulf that separated those two compartments of Hades. And some people believe that at the bottom of that great gulf is the bottomless pit. And they have reasons, scriptural reasons for saying so, which I won't get into right now. Now this bottomless pit or abyss will be um, the place where Satan himself will eventually be bound during the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. During the millennial kingdom, Satan is going to be bound. Where is he going to be bound? In the bottomless pit. Currently, the bottomless pit is the place where an unknown number of bound or chained angels, fallen angels, also known as demons, are confined. So is there anybody in the bottomless pit right now? Yes, confined demons. There are two types of fallen angels, according to the scripture. Now, the fallen angels, you know, are those who fell with Lucifer, Satan, when he rebelled against God. Satan was successful in getting one-third of all the holy angels to join him in his rebellion against the Lord God Almighty. How do I know that? Well, Revelation 12:4 tells us one-third. Now, some of these fallen angels are unconfined. They are not bound, while others are confined. We have an example in Luke chapter 8. Remember the crude dude? Crude, rude dude in the nude? (laughs) We have an example in Luke 8, verses 27 to 31, of an unconfined contingency of fallen angels or demons. These are unbound demons begging the Lord Jesus Christ to not send them into the abyss or the bottomless pit as they knew their fellow demons were bound and confined in the bottomless pit. So they're begging the Lord not to send them there. The scripture gives us the account of the Lord's healing of this gathering demoniac in this chapter. Remember, he was possessed by a legion of unconfined demons. And when Jesus spoke to the legion of demons, they begged him not to command. They see, they knew they had to obey his command, whatever it was. So they begged him not to command them to go out into the deep. What they meant there is, please, Lord, do not send us into the bottomless pit, into the abyss where we know the bound demons are being kept. They begged them instead, begged him instead to send them where? Right, into a herd of nearby swine. And as we know, the Lord did send them into the swine, and the swine went right over the cliff. See, the pigs are more, they're smarter than humans, because humans possessed by demons just live with the demons, but the pigs wouldn't tolerate that situation, so they went and committed suicide, so the demons had to leave them. But they went over the cliff and drowned in the um, 
Sea of Galilee. Unconfined demons are those, of course, with whom Christians currently engage in spiritual warfare. I guess I was supposed to have the pig still up there. Oh, well. Those are the, the unconfined ones are the ones with, with which we do battle, right? You know, as it tells us in Ephesians 6.12, they are the principalities and the powers and the spiritual rulers in high places and that sort of thing. They are free to roam the earth, and therefore they are free to possess unsaved people and to oppress men. And now, on the other hand, there are confined demons or fallen angels. Because they are confined in the bottomless pit, they cannot presently do any harm or damage to human beings on earth. So aren't you glad for that? I don't know how many of them there are. There are enough demons that are unbound to give us trouble, but I certainly am glad that at least some of these are bound and cannot do us any harm presently. Now, the big question is why this unknown amount of fallen angels is bound, whereas the others are not. Now, in fact, how do we even know that there are confined angels in the bottomless pit? Well, if you would turn to Jude 6. Jude is the book right before Revelation, so you don't have to go very far. And look at verse 6. There's only one chapter in Jude, so you just say the verse. In Jude 6, we are told that there are imprisoned angels. So I'm not making this up. There are bound angels who are being kept where? In darkness, the pit of the abyss, until when? Until the day of the Lord. That's the the day of the Lord is the whole tribulation period and onward. It says, and the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he, meaning God, hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. That's what we're reading about, the judgment of the great day. Now, all right, so that's how we know there are confined angels. We also know from what we'll look at next week when we look at uh, the sixth trumpet judgment that there are bound angels. But not everyone is agreed on the reason for the binding of these demons. But there are a number of Bible scholars who believe that these fallen angels violated the laws of God by taking on the appearance of men and having sex, then they had sexual intercourse with the daughters of men. And this violation of God's law, angels taking on men's bodies and then having intercourse with human females, produced a strange mixed race of demons and humans and giants. Now, where did these Bible scholars come up with this weird idea? Sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Well, they get it from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. If you want to turn there, I'll be reading that to you. They also get it from other passages of the scripture, such as 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. What does it say in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 5? Well, it says this. It says, And it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, 
that, now notice this term, the sons of God, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. Now, you know, why really even say anything if men saw women and thought they were pretty? That's pretty normal. I mean, that happens all the time. The term, the sons of God, whenever it is used, without exception, in the Old Testament was always a reference to angels. The daughters of men would be the daughters of men, human women. So the sons of God, angels, saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. That was the length of time that God gave men warning. This is the length of time it took Noah to build the ark, 120 years. He says, there were what in the earth? Giants. Now, the original Hebrew word there is nephalim. And that word in the Hebrew means literally fallen ones. There were giants, fallen ones in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty. Now, mighty is used there in a wicked way. Mighty in a wicked way. The same became mighty men which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. All right, that's what it says in Genesis 6. Now, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, would seem to confirm this view. Because it speaks of the fact that in the time of Noah's world... Back at the time of Noah, God, it says, spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And there are other passages as well. Some of them you'll be looking up in your scripture that seem to confirm this reason for why the the fallen angels were confined. Now, it could very well be that the fallen angels who are confined in the bottomless pit are these angels then who manifested their wickedness by trying to destroy the human race by cohabitating with human women. Jude 6, which I already quoted to you, states that the angels are reserved in everlasting chains until the judgment of the great day, that these angels are those who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. In other words, they kept not their spiritual angelic bodies, but took on the bodies of men so that they could have sexual union with human females. Now, had God not intervened by chaining these demons and by then destroying all of their ungodly mixed offspring and also all others who refused to believe the words of his prophet Noah, 
If God had not intervened with the flood, then his promised Messiah would not have been able to have been born from a righteous seed, and he would not have been able to have been the God-man, because demons would have infiltrated the human race. See, this was their plot. This was their plan to destroy the human race so that the Messiah would never be able to be born. So since the time of Noah, these wicked demons have been bound. They have been confined. However, and that's good news for us, but the bad news is that they will be unleashed upon the earth for a time of great spiritual persecution. And this is what we read about here in our text, I believe, in Revelation chapter 9, as the discharging of the locusts which emerge from the bottomless pit. Now, verse 2 of Revelation 9 tells us that when the bottomless pit is open, smoke arises as the smoke of a great furnace. You can just imagine the horrible picture. Uh, pollution such as this world has never seen will darken, it says, the sun and the moon, the air, the sun and the air. Pollution will cover the earth and out from the smoke and the stench of this pollution, it says a plague of scorpion-like demonic, I believe these are demonic, scorpion-like locusts which have no equal for terror in all of the scripture, they will invade the world. This will truly be, have you ever heard this story, the mythological story of Pandora's box, the opening of Pandora's box? This is the true story of the opening of Pandora's box. Now, these demonic locusts, who are the chained fallen angels, will be given their power to torment men by God himself. God will be the one allowing this. Their torment will be immense. You'll see that as we talk about them. But fortunately, there will be some specific limits to their destructive power. And that's what we'll look at now in the second part of our outline, the destruction of the locust. We've talked about the discharge of the locust from the bottomless pit. Now let's look at their destruction in verse, verses 3 to 6. It says, And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Out of the dark spiritual pollution which erupts from the belly of the earth when the fallen star opens the bottomless pit, will emerge wave after wave after wave of hideous, terrifying, flying creatures which John was inspired to call, what, locusts. Now, from the description that we're given, we'll look at in the third part of our outline, from the description of these locusts, we know that they are not literal insect-type locusts that we're familiar with. 
However, they do swarm together, you know, in masses, and they do darken the sky just as a plague of locusts would do. And they do leave misery in their path just as a plague of locusts would do. The eighth plague in Egypt, as a matter of fact, was a devastating plague of locusts. That's You can read about that in Exodus 10, verses 1 to 20. And this plague of locusts totally terrified Pharaoh. didn't cause him to release the Israelites, but it did terrify him. When God wanted to judge the nation of Israel, many times he would send a plague of locusts to devour their crops. And actually, the minor prophet Joel, you know, the book of Joel is all about the day of the Lord. It's all about the, the time period we're discussing in Revelation. He predicted the coming destruction of the day of, of the Lord by a devastating plague of locusts. So I think Joel was actually referring to what we have here in Revelation chapter 9. Now the locust creatures of John's Revelation 9 description emerge from the bottomless pit. And we know, one reason we know these aren't literal locusts is that the center of the earth would hardly be a breeding place for the larva of locusts. And we also know that these are not literal locusts, such as this picture here, because of their strange appearance that we'll read about. And also their even stranger activity. Plus, these locusts have a king over them. And we'll read about him in verse 11. Whereas lo- the locusts of the earth have no king. We're told that in Proverbs 30:27 that the locusts, the insect-type locusts, have no king. They travel in masses and in swarms with no leader. Not, they're not like bees. Bees have a queen, right? Well, locusts do not have a leader. Also, literal locusts eat up everything green, don't they? I mean, they, everything green is just destroyed as they travel along. However, these locusts, one of the divine limits which is placed upon them is that they are commanded not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, neither any tree. So these are not literal insect-type locusts. This is, you know, one reason we know that these are demons. These are demonic beings. Furthermore, based upon the fact that the locusts come out of the place where we know that the confined demons have been constrained, we do come to the conclusion that these locusts are demonic spirits who will be released through the sovereign will of God. He will release them, you see, in order to show men what it is like to willingly rebel against him and to instead choose to serve Satan. You see, whether men like to admit it or not, if they're not serving God, who are they serving? the God of this world. They are serving Satan. The ungodly men on earth during the time of the tribulation are going to be mercifully given a little taste of what fellowship with their future cohabitants of the lake of fire will be like. Now why do I say they're mercifully given a little taste of what it will be like? Because I say mercifully because God is allowing this torment so as to get those who will not yet have turned to him in saving faith to do so. 
This is why he's sending these locusts, why he's loosing them from the bottomless pit. It's his mercy and his grace at work. You know, you can look at a chapter like this and say how horrible God is. No, he isn't. It would be far better for man to be tormented and tortured for five months here on earth than to spend eternity being tortured in hell. And so this is God's grace trying with this horrible, horrible plague of locusts to get men to turn to him and repent. He's giving them just another warning sign along the way that if they don't change, they're going to, you know, they're on the road to death and destruction. Well, God limits the locusts in several ways. I've already mentioned that they're not allowed to touch anything green. Any, any grass or any trees. Secondly, they are not permitted to touch anyone who has been divinely sealed by God in their foreheads. And this will definitely mean that the 144,000 sealed Jews, remember back in Revelation 7, 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, that they will be spared the torment of these demonic locusts. In addition, most Bible commentators believe that this protection will also cover every other living believer on the earth at that time. You know, it's a good thing to be a believer because you can never be really possessed by a demon. And I believe that just as the Lord God protected the Israelites from the plagues of Egypt over in the land of Egypt, of Goshen, that he is going to protect those who are his during the time of the tribulation. 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us that the Lord knows those who are his because they have his seal. He knows his own. So it would seem that the only means of unnatural death, which will be allowed during the time of the tribulation, will be... for believers, The only means of unnatural death for believers during the tribulation would be that of martyrdom. Now, we have seen definitely that many people who come to know Christ will be martyred for their faith during the tribulation. But God will allow this kind of unnatural death because it's an honor to die for Christ's name's sake and to be given the reward of the crown of life and a special place you know, in the millennial kingdom. So he will allow that kind, but it seems to me like he protects the believers from every other kind of death. Now, another restriction, which is uh, placed upon the locust tormentors, is that they are forbidden to kill their victims. They are able to impose excruciating pain on their Christ-rejecting victims, but they will not be allowed to kill them. God is giving, you see again, these tormented men and women the opportunity to repent and turn to him. And I believe that the moment they would do so, that they would then be sealed and protected from any further torment from these locust creatures who will bite their victims, we are told, with a scorpion type of sting. Now, there are a number of different varieties of scorpions. I looked this up in the World Book Encyclopedia. They range anywhere. There's, I think, 20-some different kinds just in America alone. I don't think we have scorpions in this part of the country, I'm glad to say. I've never seen one anyway, but when I lived in Florida, I did see a scorpion. 
Um, but it is said that the sting of a scorpion is one of the most painful stings which is known. The venom affects the nerves and the veins so that the victim literally feels like he's on fire inside. Now, although very seldom is a scorpion sting fatal, except in maybe very small children, the excruciating effects, it said, can last for days. Now, actually, I thought this was interesting, the physical response to the sting of a scorpion is very similar to the actions of a person who is possessed by a demon. Often, the victim of a scorpion bite will roll on the ground, grind his teeth, scream, and even foam at the mouth. Now, and so that's maybe another little indication that these are definitely demonic beings. The area, it says, which has been bitten will stay inflamed for a long time. The scorpions sting from the demonic locusts of Revelation chapter 9 when they come out of the bottomless pit. Their bite will cause men so much pain and so much agony that it tells us they actually seek to die. Verse uh, 6. But they will not be able to die. The torment and and the, the pain will be so dreadful, you see, that men will despair of living and they will seek death. And this suggests to us, actually, that many will attempt suicide, you know, hoping that maybe the grave will offer them some kind of a relief from their suffering. But they will not even be able to commit suicide. God will somehow prevent them from being successful. Look at verse 6. It says, And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. So they'll be suicidal, but they won't be able to even take their own lives. So God will not allow the demonic locusts to kill their victims, nor will he allow the victims to kill themselves. And as I mentioned, this is just another indication, really, of God's great mercy. Were the victims of this fifth trumpet judgment to die, then what would happen? They would perish for all of eternity. However, God will allow them instead to be tortured horribly for a five-month period of time so as to attempt to drive them to their knees before him and, you know, prevent them from going into eternal torment. His desire is that all men would turn to him in saving repentance. So in summation then of the divine restrictions that will be placed upon these demonic locusts, we find that they are limited as to what they might strike, nothing green, who they might strike, only those without the protective seal of God, how far they might go, they cannot kill anyone, and how long they may do their damage. How long? Five months. We're told twice. Five months. And by the way, five months is the normal lifespan for an insect-type locust. They live from May to September, which is five months long. Now, it perhaps is significant that the duration of the rising floodwaters back in Noah's day, and five, remember, is the number of grace. This is God's grace. doesn't sound like it, but it is. Five months was the duration of the rising floodwaters back in Noah's day. Now, just as that earlier day of judgment, men in the tribulation period 
you see, will once again suffer for five months. But this time, instead of everybody perishing, except those safely inside the ark, this time no one will be able to die. The agents of man's suffering in the flood judgment were, as we talked about, those fallen angels who left their own estate in order to cohabitate with the daughters of women. And for their sin, we read that they have been chained in darkness all these many years in the bottomless pit. Well, in the days of the coming tribulation, these very same wicked beings will be loosed and they will again become the agents of a five-month period of judgment upon ungodly humanity. So there's an interesting comparison there. Let's look at the destruct and the description now of the locusts. This is the most interesting of all. This is you think it's weird been weird so far? You ain't seen nothing yet. The description of the locusts. Let's look at verses seven to twelve. It says, John says, and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. Try to draw this. (laughs) And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were, breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. And uh, it says, One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. In this section, we're going to look at their characteristics, the characteristics of the locusts, the king of the locusts, and then the conclusion of the locusts. First of all, their characteristics. Now, it's obvious here from the description that John gives us. I don't know if you can see that picture, but this artist tried to draw what these things would look like. Um, It's obvious that they are not literal insect-type locusts as we know of them. I mean, that would be a frightening thing to see an insect in your garden that had hair like a woman and a face like a man and teeth like a lie. I just can't imagine. But rather, John was inspired to refer to these creatures as locusts because of their function as a source of judgment. They're a plague from God. So he refers to them as locusts. Now, these creatures combine the terrifying qualities of both beasts and men, and their description gives us an utterly fearful idea, really, of their character. We know that the eight physical characteristics which are given to us here are not literal. Because over and over again in every one of these situations, uh, John used the metaphoric words as or like. I'll emphasize those as I talk about them. Now, the first description that he gives to us with regard is with regard to the shapes of these demonic beings. beings. In verse 7, he tells us, and the shapes of the locusts were like unto... Okay, that's a metaphoric term. So he's doing the best he can to describe them. But we know that these are symbolic. The, the characteristics, the, the physical descriptions are symbolic of their character. He says, like unto horses prepared unto battle. Now, so one thing is uh, apparent here, that these cannot be little insect locusts because 
of their size. I mean, if he compares them to a horse, they're far bigger than a literal locust would be. But we do know that demons don't have a, a physical shape because they're spirit beings. So this is a description which symbolically speaks of their militant strength and their warlike characteristics. Horses are biblical symbols of military might and of battle. And indeed, we find that John tells us these locust creatures are prepared unto battle. They're coming to do war on mankind. And then the apostle went on to tell us that on the heads of the locusts were as it were. Okay, so this is symbolic again. Crowns of, or crowns like gold. Now these golden-like crowns on their head symbolize for us their given authority and their given power. So just as their horse-like shapes symbolically speak of their militant strength, these golden-like crowns speak of their authoritative strength. For his own purposes, God is the one who is giving these locusts his authority. Although, as we've learned, it is restricted. They don't have unlimited authority. It's restricted power and authority. Now, the next thing that is described is the faces. And John says here that they were as the faces of men. And perhaps this, you know, I can't be dogmatic about it, but perhaps it symbolically speaks of their intelligence. You know, maybe it speaks of the fact that they have a purpose for what they are doing. They are serving their king who is the destroyer of men. And like their leader, who we're told about in verse 11, they hate men, especially after having been bound for thousands of years for their former attempt to contaminate mankind by cohabitating with their daughters. So these creatures, these demonic creatures, hate men. And they would love nothing better than to drive all of their victims to suicide because they know that then they would be doomed to eternal hell like themselves. So they have intelligence. They have a purpose for what they're doing. Then in verse 8, we discover that the locusts not only had faces like men, but they had what? Hair as the hair of women. Now, this is symbolic of, who would like to guess? Yes, exactly. You've heard the tape. (laughs) This is symbolic of their seductive nature. The hair of a woman back in biblical days was the only thing which was seen because the woman was covered from head to toe, literally. Therefore, her hair became what was alluring to a man. The hair of a woman was the point of seduction. And this is why, in case you ever wondered about this, this is why Peter warned women back then about plating their hair and putting all kinds of decorations in their hair. Because this was done in order to attract men and to seduce men. It would be comparable today to a pastor warning Christian women not to wear miniskirts and low-cut blouses and tight pants and seductive clothing. The demonic locusts may seductively lure people into situations such as 
pornography and adultery and fornication and homosexuality and drugs and alcohol. And when they get them there, lure them there, then they will turn on them and torment them with their painful scorpion type of sting. And this is exactly, you know, it it gives us a very appropriate, apt picture of what the nature of sin is, is like, doesn't it? Because sin at first appears so alluring and seductive and desirable. But sooner or later, what does it do? It turns on you and it stings you and it becomes your torment. And the occult has always seductively fascinated men. But its sting has driven many a man and woman and young person to suicidal desires. And unlike this locust situation, many of them have been successful in taking their own lives. Well, John continues his description of this demonic horde by stating that their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And this speaks of their destructive strength. Not only will they have militant strength in that they have shapes like horses and authoritative strength crowns, golden like crowns, and intelligent strength, faces like men, and seductive strength, hair like women, but they will also have destructive strength. The lion is the king of the wild animals, and this also should remind us of the original leader of this wicked group who goes about as a roaring, what? Lying, lion, seeking whom he may devour. Then in the first part of verse 9, we're told that the locusts have breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and this speaks of their immunity to destruction. And I'm going to skip some things that you can read in the notes because of time here. The worst news of all is that what John saves for last, and that is that their torment is in their tails. We're told that they have a torment like unto scorpions. And so they're able to afflict this horrendous, excruciating pain on their victims for a period of time of five months. Now, let's look at the king of the locusts in verse 11. I already read that to you, so for time's sake, I'm going to skip reading it again. We're told here that unlike insect um, locusts who have no king, these demonic locusts do have a king. And we're told that this king is the angel of the bottomless pit. And his name in the Hebrew and in the Greek is one and the same. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer. The word destroyer in Greek is Apollyon. Now, all Bible teachers across the board are in agreement that the king leader of this demonic horde of locusts is a fallen angel. Everybody agrees on that because no holy angel would be called destroyer, nor would he be a king over such a devilish force from the bottomless pit. Now some, but here's where the difference comes in, some believe that this king is perhaps the instigator of the wicked angels who attempted to destroy humanity at the time of the flood. And therefore he is called Apollyon or Abaddon, destroyer. He, 
along with the angels who followed his attempt at destroying humanity, he has been bound in the bottomless pit all these thousands of years, and he has served as their infernal king. Now, the proponents of this view say that he is comparable in Satan's kingdom to Michael, the archangel, in God's kingdom of heavenly hosts. Now, this is possible. This is possible. I don't know. Other Bible teachers simply believe that this king of the demonic locust army from the bottomless pit is Satan himself. And, of course, you know Satan doesn't really look like this. All right? They say it's Satan himself who is the original destroyer of mankind because he's the one who brought sin into the garden and started the whole thing. You know, Satan often appears as an angel of light, doesn't he? You know, he he goes about especially very strong working through religion and through good works. But here, in chapter 9 of Revelation, the mask is stripped away and Satan is seen in his true character as the king destroyer of mankind, the ugly leader of this locust horde of demons. So it is possible that Apollyon... Abaddon and Satan may all be one and the same person. However, an argument against this view that this king leader is Satan is the fact that Satan's domain has never been in the lower parts of the earth. His domain has been in the heavenly places, atmospheric heavens. He's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, and his domain has been here on this earth, on this earth, because he is the uh, god of this world. However, Satan has never had a connection with the bottomless pit. One day we know that he will be cast there. For a thousand years. But as of yet, he has not been there. So we cannot dogmatically say whether this is Satan himself, the, you know, the king of the locusts, if, if it's Satan, or if it's perhaps another fallen angel who became the leader of the bound angels. So you make up your mind. The conclusion of the locusts, uh, very quickly, I'm just going to, you can read your notes, but in verse 12, John tells us, if you think this has been bad, this is just one woe that's passed. There are still how many more left? Two more woes to go. Now, I want to close with a quote from Dr. John Phillips um, in his book on Revelation, merely because there is such a prevalent attitude in today's world against even believing in demons to begin with, or fallen angels, or even believing in angels, period. And I thought, well, there probably are some of you even who are inwardly questioning what we have talked about here this morning, or perhaps, you know, even scorning the reality of all that we have discussed here. So let me just read his little quote, and then we'll close with our quote, our clip from Mina Oglesby. John Phillips says this, quote, Modern man professes not to believe in demons, but they exist just the same. Moreover, they are clever with a diabolical cunning. Man's attitude toward the demon world may well be likened to a man's attitude in the dark ages toward bacteria. 
If we could be transported back to London in the year 1666, we would find ourselves in a nightmare world, the great bubonic plague at its height. The sights and sounds of the city are like the terrible climax of a horror movie. It is generally believed that fresh air is the culprit. The College of Physicians recommends the frequent firing of guns to blow away the deadly air. People seal themselves into their rooms and burn foul-smelling messes to ward off the fresh air. Chimneys are sealed. Rooms are gray with smoke and people choke in the suffocating stench. Outside, palls of black smoke hang over the city. People sit in the tightly sealed chambers, grimly determined to endure the smarting smoke, convinced that they are thus immune to the plague. We tell them that they are wrong, that the plague is not caused by the fresh air, but by germs, microscopic organisms spread by fleas, and they laugh us to scorn. Modern man has adopted a similar attitude toward the demonic world. We tell them that the world is in the grip of Satan and that he has countless hosts of invisible demons to aid him in his dark designs against mankind. We say that these unseen beings are intelligent and that before long they are to be joined by countless more of their kind, worse even than themselves. People look at us with pitying scorn and suggest that we peddle our theories to the publishers of science fiction. But it is true all the same. Once the pit is opened, the world of men will be invaded by a virus far more dreadful than the bubonic plague, a virus all the more deadly because it is able to think and because it directs its attack against the soul rather than the body. End of quote. 